Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, crack down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bursts through the defence. Just watch this. Good evening and welcome to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. Andy Barrow here. We've been hammered by England. Oh no, wait. That was six months ago. Uh, Leinster have uh, won the, uh, the Rabo uh, Guinness Pro 14. Magnus. Magnus title. Uh, for the third time in a row, in a final that was exactly the opposite of what I predicted. I was either predicting a blowout for Leinster or a strange, tight, weird game. And as the teams were announced, I was leaning more to a strange, tight, weird game where Ulster would just get under their skin and bring on a lot of big guns. I still kind of fancy Leinster to win it. In the end, it sort of petered out a bit. As soon as they got the intercept try, there was uh, there was no coming back for Ulster. And you feel like they should be ruining the decision to take, not taking a kick, a goal, when they're 10-5 down after 38 minutes. Um, what is there to what is there to say about Ulster's performance? Well, the, the first thing I'd say is it started so well. Uh, it wasn't just James Hume's excellent try, but their attack down the right, you know, a minute and a half earlier, also stretched Leinster badly. They looked alive. Um, they looked like they knew where they wanted to attack Leinster and to, how to get there quickly. And I felt that Hume's try was beautifully set up and executed. I thought the screen pass from, I think, Alan O'Connor with Eric O'Sullivan maybe just running a, run a quite a tight line to him, but screening that and then going behind him to Hume. Left Hume with an awful lot of work to do, but also left Hume with a lot of space to run into. And it was a cracking finish. He's a player that you had seen uh, and, and pointed out to me uh, a couple of years ago, I think... 2018 under 20s yeah a player that you I'm like trying to remember off. who he played in the combo that he played with Curtis was he that's that, right yeah the same yeah and then we saw him again at a game um, in the RDS when he was played at 12 around Christmas time yeah and you're yeah. Going, what's he doing at 12 that's wrong that is a wrong selection and you're right I think he's a 13 and uh, you know potentially and a very exciting 13 I felt with Dan McFarland, it was the end of the beginning at his time in Ulster. And I, uh, but I mean, remembering back to around the time he signed. So before he signed, when the IRFU were discussing with the SRU about his release, because he was still under contract with the SRU. Joey Carberry wouldn't go to Ulster because they didn't have a head coach. Um, and Ross Byrne wouldn't and go either. Ross Byrne wouldn't go either. And like they were described as a basket case by Drico. And we were discussing, oh, you know, like, should they just forget the Heineken Cup, like, put out the academy side? Uh, which you said no to, which I was strongly pushing. Uh, and, you know, I was wrong. I think it was kind of just in the play the Ravenhill games, but. Yeah. You know, like on, a French on the, team. On the road, you know, let them. 
that the Esquires get flogged. And they, you know, they, they, they got to the semi-final last year and they were obliterated and then they got to a final this year and they weren't obliterated. And, you know, they scored a good try. They knew what they were doing. And it sort of, you looked at, uh, when McFarlane came in, Ulster were like just attack, attack, attack. That no matter where you were, it was like attack, move it, get wide, fast, speed, width. And it was kind of like what Pat Lamb, I would say more in a second season, Pat Lamb, like uh, maybe, maybe, maybe it clicked in the second season. <laughs> maybe they were trying to do it in the first season. He just didn't notice it. But it's definitely in the second season Connacht of, of Pat Lamb's time. Like Connacht looked that. So the season before they won it was the mm-hmm. one I'm thinking of. Yeah, 14, Connacht, 15. Yeah, like they, they, they played a match against the Scarlets, which I still recall. Because like the Scarlets had all their Welsh players back, it was it was it was in the springtime. It was it was lovely, and it was in it was in like Stradi or whatever the the Parky new ground. Scarlet. It was a Parky Scarlets. Were they in Parky Scarlets at that stage? They probably weren't in Parky. They were, yeah. they were in Parky yeah. Scarlets. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, the Scarlets probably won by double figures because it was such a high score in a match. But like Connacht were scoring incredible tries, like really taking the game to them, and all of that. So, so the reason I say it's the end is that as we were discussing before, he he went into the final without a recognised place kicker. So, like, no no John Cooney, no Madigan, right, between, you know, between his halfbacks, you could pick one of those. And, you know, at 5-0, if you go 7-0, it's, it's, it's different. And, you know, at 10-5, if you go 10-8, it's different. And I, like, since the World Cup final, one of the ways I've watched rugby matches is... Like, how does a side handle pressure? How does it exert pressure? How does it absorb pressure? Like, what's its capacity to do that? And Leinster are brilliant at it. Like, you, you could see Leinster in the semi-final and in the final, like, make crucial turnovers in, in line-outs or, like, step up their defensive plays. Like, for example, like, going back to the semi-final, you see, like, Dialendi running at Sexton. Sexton makes that tackle on the ball. Like big game player turning up, and all the Leinster guys. Like I mean, there's a bit two other Leinster guys go in to finish that one off. But like that, that sex to make it, and you sort of know we have to make it. But like this is how we handle pressure, we absorb pressure, and like there's Pat Lamb, and that's the, I was, it only came to me just before we sort of started chatting. I was there going, oh, should I Google this? And I, was, I, said, I won't find it. But it's something like, you know, about players that know the game and players that understand the game. And the, the Ulster guys look like they know what they're trying to do. The Leinster guys look like they understand what they're doing. And, like, Leinster are a superb team. You know, like, Dialende's talking about, you know, when he's joining Munster and what they're doing playing Leinster, and he's going, like, you know, they're probably the best club team in the world, or arguably, you know, like it's it's stem and the Crusaders type of thing, you know. But like that's that's what you're coming down to. Um so it's 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 a bridge to carry. But if you're if you're the coach, how can you go into a match? How can you go into a final without a recognised place kicker and expect to put the opposition under pressure? Like if you score five, you want to make it seven. If you have an opportunity, and like when Sexton was first made captain. He he kicked the ball into the corner, no matter who the opposition were. Like he wouldn't pay attention to the match. And as a consequence, he'd put the guys coming off the bench under pressure because they'd be playing against, like, you know, an Edinburgh team that just had Richard Cockerell installed that were just going to defend, defend, defend. Like, they weren't going to score a try easily against Edinburgh. You know, they had to work for that. But you could put Edinburgh away by, like, getting 3-3-3, three, 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 and all of a sudden, like, you're nine points clear. So now... 
you look at Leinster's, like Leinster take those points, take those kicks, and they turn, like yeah. they, they, they exert scoreboard pressure. There's a couple of times which Leinster did it since their restart in that when they're within the 15s and it's a, slight, it's a trickier kick, they just go, listen, let's go to the corner. You know, with a non, like the line it has been, you know, Leinster's chief source of woe since the return. But there's twice, once in the semi-final and once in the final. Like once they got the penalty in front of the posts, one time with Sexton on the pitch, one time with Ross Byrne on the pitch, it's like, let's not fuck around here taking a scrum and just going like, this is in front of the sticks. It's a gimme. Let's just get three points on the board. I said this during the match. Um, <clears throat> I think after the Munster, or Ulster uh, declined that kick, gave away a penalty in attack. And Leinster cleared their lines. Um, it's been a, a source of weakness for Irish provinces and Irish teams for like a decade and a half or two decades. Their decision making about whether to go to the corner and a kind of perpetual obsession of going to the corner. Um, I remember it was highlighted in some. There was a tour game we played down in Argentina, and like, you know, we kicked to the corner on a penalty. You know, on thirty-eight minutes. Oh yes, seconds, yeah, twenty fourteen, and then didn't score anything. Got a penalty forty-one minutes at the start of the second half, and we're like, "Oh, chasing by it." We're like, "We're doing the points," and you're going, "That's the wrong way around." You have, you know, you, you had a, you could only get one, you know, you one shot at it basically at the line out, uh, you know, with the clock going red in the first half, and you've all, you have as many phases as you wanted to start of the second half to get to earn you a card or a try or anything. But yeah, basically. I say, in my head, it was like a lot of very, very sort of momentous monster scores came from the kick to the corner line wall, and, and the whole of Irish rugby became infected with this. I mean, it obviously is still a very good way of scoring. Yeah. What I'm saying is, our decision making around that has become blurred to the extent that on the broadcast on Saturday night, uh, they were putting up the number of tries for sport in a final where there's no bonus point. Yeah, it's like you've lost focus of yeah the point of try. I, I like it's not I, about scoring tries. It's about scoring more points in the other. Yeah, team. I like the to like a framework that once you're within that. What I I've always struggled to give it a good name, but like I call it the kicker's box, which is between the fifteens, uh, inside the fifteens that is, and the ten yard line, of your opponent's ten yard line. So they're going, that's where you should be. A 90% kicker. And when you get when you get penalties in, in that area, you should seriously consider. Like your default position should be I'm gonna kick a score here, I'm gonna attempt to kick a score. And that there should have to be like a strong argument. I'm not talking about sitting down and going, well now you learn out your three points for this, but just like what are we what are we trying to do here? Why why would we not take a kick a goal from this position where we're ninety percent, you know because. Well, I mean, but it, but it, yeah, sorry, it, it's not even. It's a, they take a 90 percent kicker and define that kicker's box, and you probably go like he's pretty. The kicker's pretty 95 percent. So let's give him ninety five percent in that kicker's box and go. Because I remember the reason I'm thinking about this is I drafted an article that I never wrote, and it was after another tour match. It was back in sorry. Nine, it was back, it, it was 2013, I think. Where did it 2013, America, North America. It was yeah. Henshaw and Oldings. Yeah, Lions, yeah. yeah. And it was, you know, do you go? So, like, at 
three points by 95% is, I think it's like it's 285. It's, it's, so you're giving up 2.85 points. Now, if you score in the corner from, from a line out, that's five. So then you're going, what's, what's your probability of scoring and then what's your probability of getting the kick? So let's say that like you're 95% in there, but like you're, you're less on the conversion. Okay, so let's say you're 80% further out on sort of, you know, the far bits, right? For whatever say, And you'd have to know what your kicker is like to, to, to make a good estimation of it. Sure, they are doing these statistics. Yeah, but like you're saying, like the conversion is, say you're 80, like it's 1.6, right? So to score then, your difference is, uh, what, like 1.35 out of the five, right? So then you're saying it's what, like basically a third, okay? So like you've got to score that. You've got to score one out of three times that you're down there. And if you don't, it's a bad move. Mm-hmm. That's like that that's the trade-off. That's the match. And you, sort of as it as it turned out, like we didn't. Do you know what I mean? Like and you sort of like, did your line get turned over? Do you knock it on? The laws were different. That as you were saying, like the clock was in the red, whereas now the laws are sort of more towards like keeping the ball, you know, having the line out kicking out, like you, you can't finish on a penalty. So if the opposition give away a penalty, you can just kick it back and it's not going to go red. But it's also harder to score from malls because the way they're refereed. So this obsession with going for tries, to my mind, goes back to the Monster campaign of 2006 when the, like the Brains Trust, like the Foley, O'Connell, Kidney, all the guys said... To win a final, O'Garrett, like you have to score tries. So they kicked into the corner against Biritz when they were down, when, you know, sort of received wisdom would say that you kick at the, you know, go at the post. Mm -hmm. And they scored from it. And like for better or for worse, it was for better in that match. But you sort of look at it over the course of time and you go, like, was that the best thing that could have happened? Because like famously, Munster turned down the opportunity in Thoman Park a number of years later, not against that Leicester, long later, against yeah. Leicester, to take Leicester on in a scrum. And Leicester, they couldn't have believed their luck. You know, like they're, they're just about hanging on against Munster. And if Munster get three points, they go back ahead and they choose a scrum. And they choose a scrum against Julian White. And Castro. And Castro with Munster scrum. Like, Leicester destroyed them. That was the winning of the game. So my, my, and my thing is, it goes back to pressure. It goes back to like, you know, how can you exert pressure against? So to my mind, like you always take your points, but there's probably times that you don't in terms of like, you want to run down the clock or you do have a particularly strong line out mall or... You're going like, we have to get five points. That's more important. Or you've got like Radrada playing for you and you go, do you know what? If we have a stable scrum, we can get him one-on-one with somebody. Yeah. Like, you know, like if, if you've got ways... There's a lot of things which inform the decision. Yeah. Like if you are, if your line out is really sure, if you know that you have a good line out mall and that you can continue to just keep making them give away penalties, for example, you can't make a team give away a penalty, but you're thinking, you, you, you make the argument quickly in your head, they've already given away two penalties down here. Third penalty could be a yellow card. Let's just try and force that yellow card. We'll get a penalty again. And then they're down, you know, to 14 men. Well, but, sorry, we're so digressing we're, here. We're, yeah. we're going off the topic, I think, a bit. Why would Ulster go into that game without the two, you know, the, the, one, either, either the halfbacks who, who could take their kicks to them with a high... Success. Yeah, I was so... Why do, they, why do they drop Cooney and... I was so impressed with McFarland's decisiveness in the semi-final because... 
that semi-final, the first half it was also were really ordinary and it was an ordinary game. And he made like such big calls at halftime. Like bringing off players at halftime is is really unusual in, in Irish professional rugby. Uh, and Matheson played re- extremely well in the second half. And he was really, really impressive. And like Cooney absolutely, ca- he's been carrying Ulster uh, for really like three seasons. He's been a huge player for them. Um, so to take him off was a, a super ballsy decision and the right decision. And then Mazda came on much later in the game. You know, he came on with about 11 minutes to go. Uh, but obviously made a massive, massive impression. So I was surprised when, uh, when McFarland sort of, I'm not saying he didn't consider it, I'm certainly considered it, but he decided that the risk was worth taking, that he would go with Matheson and Billy Burns and not have that, that place kicker, that place kicker, not have a place kicker, like a really good place kicker on the pitch to start. Because as you say, the difference between seven points and five points is two points. <laughs> the difference between seven points and five points is it's always going to be significant. You know, if you get a penalty, it's 5-3, not a penalty in your head. You know, if you get two penalties, you're still, and they've scored the conversion, you're still you're still behind. But also, you know that you can probably give away a certain number of penalties and they won't be kicked. Uh, whether that be penalties uh, around the halfway line or penalties you know, outside uh, the 15 on either side, between the 15 and the touchline. And there's, so I, I felt that that was a, a selection error. And as I get, that's a real, I think that McFarlane might have outfoxed himself in that regard. Like it's a basic, you need a good goal kicker in a final. Don't, you cannot ignore that. Don't ignore that. And it was, it was kind of compounded by the fact that Herring got injured in the first half. So Ulster's line out, wasn't like it's not like Herring is an absolute. Dirt. He's not. He's not Jerry Flannery, mm. but he's 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 a Test match hooker. He's definitely Ulster's first choice yeah. by a distance. Like when Rory Best was there, towards the end of his career, Herring was still playing all the domestic matches, and they were kind of sharing. Yeah, you know, the, and he was captaining Ulster. A lot, he was captaining right? an Ulster a lot, but like he's he's by a distance Ulster's first choice hooker. So now your line out isn't as good, and like it's a gambler's move by McFarland to not go in with those and it's when it goes it's, wrong it's it's there's like there's when you look at it actually you, like a gambler's moves is kind of a nice way of putting it like he's not given Ulster much of a chance of winning that by by going in without a place kicker but okay well let's go uh, he starts the game normally he just goes here's our plan to beat Leinster it's like you're not going to beat them so let me just give this example because you used the gambling analogy. I was watching England versus Australia in a one-day match uh, in cricket on uh, Monday, I think it was, or Sunday, Sunday mm. afternoon. And um, Owen Morgan was captain of England and Shane Warren made a reference to he's going to play all his ships now. He number well behind the game. Huge big partnership between Finch and Labuschagne. 
and they were, you know, they needed 100 off 120 balls. Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, he has to basically go all in there. So he has, yeah. to, he has to play, he has to bowl all his fast bowlers, his best two bowlers, use up all their overs, and bowl and get as many crucial wickets to put the game back in yeah. balance. And, it, and like, I've been watching cricket for a long time and I couldn't believe this is the first time someone has used poker as an analogy for a home day in cricket. <laughs> they, it, they're like, oh, what would you bridge? <laughs> but it was perfect. It was, and it was just like, he can either lose this game by loads and like never be in it and be like, you know, lose it with almost like 10 or, 10 or 8 overs left and sort of look like you know, that was a one-way street. And instead, what they did was they put the pressure on, they cracked Australia and then the weaker bowlers who they had to finish off the overs with, uh, you know, they put Australia away because they they lost the momentum. Yeah. The game completely swung. It's Jaffer Archer and so, yeah, Jock, Wokes, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And then they, the two current bowlers finished it off. But it, I mean, I there were two currents. It, it was sort of a fascinating. I mean, that's what I think that McFarland was trying to do. He was saying, if we go toe to toe with uh, with Leinster, there's no way we beat them. Yeah, and that's why I was saying it's going to be a tight, weird game, and we're going to bring on strong players at the end, and we're going to. They probably got the nod. They probably like I. I thought that Leinster would do what Ulster had did I thought that Leinster's bench would include Cronin and Ruddock and that we'd try and stack our bench and even Rob Kearney I thought would be would be our number 23 I thought we'd stack our bench with experience um because Leinster haven't been as good since the restart as they were beforehand and I thought that like the older I get the more I see the intangible of experience as being vitally important in cup matches that you know the idea that you're going to have a you know a, a game breaker on the bench i i see that as having i see that as improbable whereas i see good decisions being made by players who have huge amounts of experience as probable yeah i i i refer to both the semi-final and the final wins as mature that that's the f- that was the first adjective that came to mind not like sparkling or decisive or any of that sort of stuff like mature mm. and again it, it goes back to that idea of how do you handle pressure how do you like how do you absorb and how do you apply and it was much more for me like how Leinster absorbed pressure yeah and I suppose by taking the kicks they applied pressure like and they applied scoreboard pressure which is the biggest one yeah so like, it's not just like you know set pieces like you know can you can you outscrum them or yeah. like you know, can you make turnovers at, at line outs? Like those are, those are tangible examples of how you do it. But like the ultimate one is scoreboard pressure. It's Absolutely. that idea of going like three, six, nine points up, and like for the, the game gets further and further away. And I agree with you. Like I, I think that's. I mean, McFarland must have made that decision. And again, like the reason why I think it's the beginning or the end of the beginning for him is that like what happens next because. You, you sort of you always have to evolve like you it's it's just one of those things or else you like you have to reinvent yourself so like you look at football managers and you look at like that sort of marker greatness was like oh, he won it with two teams or he won it with three teams mm. and like they're able to go back out and not necessarily stick with the formula that one of them the last time that they kind of go right well like these are the best players available to me now within my budget 
And my budget might be enormous. Like I might yeah. be able to buy really significant players and they're not the same as the last guys. So we're not going to do it the same way around. And like that, that's the hallmark of greatness. Like from the difference between the 89 Milan team and the 1994 Milan team. Mm. Yeah. Obviously Ferguson is the one that is like the three teams that won. But like Pallister and Bruce, this really old-fashioned pair of stoppers uh, at centre-back. And then you had Candy Winner with kids. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, you know, three iterations. Like, incredible. Uh, in fairness to all Red Nose. And Wigan. Wigan had that sort of team yeah. where... Kelvin Scarrett. That was, that, was, uh, that was Kelvin Scarrett doing the dirty blow in the cast commentary. But like Kelvin Scarrett, you know, this absolute fucking... Like just... Just such a tug, basically. But then you had, you know, coming into the next iteration when they signed Ellery Hanley and managed to put together Ellery Hanley and... Uh, not, sorry, not Ellery Hanley, but they put together Martin O'Fire with Ellery Hanley. You just go, Jesus. And they still had Andy Gregory and Sean Edwards, yeah. but then, like, Andy Farrell came through, Phil Clark was playing. Yeah, yeah like Chris Lablinski, sort of, you know? Yeah. You're going, like, this team has gone from being the durest, toughest team to like they're basically like the kangaroos except they wear cherry and white mm-hmm. so you, you, know? you, you and you see that and it's like it's really impressive because it's it's uh, it's like castle grayskull like it's scary from the opposition is you no matter what you're going to do and play these guys snake mountain but anyway that 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 sort of idea of having multiple teams so i like Leinster are, I, I've been more impressed with them when they've come back. And the, the name that came to mind is uh, Hicks and Gracie. Like Leinster are able to take whatever you give them mm-hmm. and play with it. Yeah, it's funny. And like, you know, they, they sort of, they'll, they'll deal with it, they'll think on their feet. Yeah. And I, they don't have any one way of playing. Like they'll deal with the way that you play. Yeah. I was very impressed with uh, Leinster the lineouts, which I was very unimpressed with. Likewise, yeah. I thought Leinster in the final. I thought guys, this like the quasi underrated guys like Devin Toner and Josh Vanderfleer. Uh, like Keelan Doris was super, just super. I wouldn't understate his his contribution whatsoever since since the return. He's really uh, put down a marker. He's the form player in the entire island. By like very obviously, I don't know if you could find somebody to disagree with that, but it's funny that you mentioned Hicks and Gracie. I was thinking of another fella when I was thinking of uh, Van der Fleer's performance, you know, because Will Connors did his job so effectively against uh, against Munster and especially against CJ, who was who was outstanding in the first game, the regular season game, and then Connors, I thought was a sort of. It was a sort of horses for courses in terms of with Munster shy of of uh, of Killer and also Schneiman. Like, it's like the Munster's forward carrying game is CJ Vanderlyn. To take him out of the game, you're really standard. Sorry, yeah, standard. Uh, you're really you're really cutting Munster's go for it at source. But I also felt that it was half in as CJ is Billy Vunapola, and this is how we're going to try and game plan for Billy. But then, you know, Josh was got the final and he was under, he was like, 
he sort of tends to be overlooked a lot. Like it's like Josh Van Der we can't wait until Dan Levy comes back. Josh Van Der Fleer, don't worry, now Will Connors is here. And he, he's not like Higson, but he's like, uh, I don't know if you remember, Mikko Salo from, from CrossFit, the, the Finnish farmer back ages ago, like 10 years ago, 11 years ago, when I was looking at CrossFit and stuff. And he's just this, he has this, uh, there's a Finnish word called Sisu, S-I-S-U, which is like uh, self-reliance and toughness and just basically not quitting. And I'm just being quiet and not quitting, just not quitting. And like I was watching some, uh, I saw they actually made a documentary uh, and it's on YouTube. Uh, this is when like CrossFit wasn't like totally bonkers, <laughs> giving out guns to everyone. Uh, and it was really, it was really sort of uh, revelatory at the time. Um, but anyway, Miko Salo is this guy who works really hard. He's a, he's a Finnish farmer and then he, goes and just trains super hard in the mornings and the evenings and he he helps his old man like you know move furniture and stuff and he just has no airs or graces about him he has no pretensions he works really hard he's a real modest guy but his work capacity is fucking insane he he has just the engine of God in him. What is it? Is it a Stakanovite? Is that the... That's right. Yeah. Stakanov. He's a pure Stakanov. This fella was mining a ton of coal in 20 minutes, you know? And I was just thinking of Van der Fleer and that. Like, Van der Fleer is just never... Like, he has no um, cheerleaders. He has no social media presence. He's not... But that fella is just a worker. He's an unbelievable, he has work capacity, which is mind blown. Like, you know, going back in time, like Nigel Carr type work capacity, uh, slats type work capacity. A guy who's just off the line, like a spring load. And I think, I think, mm, I think, yeah, carried very well against the All Blacks when we beat them in. Uh, Lansdowne Road very well particularly well and in the wide channels and carried well against, I think against England in not 2018 but maybe no 2016 20, yeah like one of his sort of close to his debut maybe even his debut at yeah level. like really really good leg drive yeah and I think if you go back to the so you're saying about how like Will Connors was a great selection to Mark CJ mm. and you can sort of go, well, could see he was playing for Ulster, so that's a guy that you have to stop at source. But like Van der Fleer spent an, like a lot of time in Billy Burns' face because mm. Billy Burns likes to play flat to the line. Ulster like to put it through hands, like to get close to the gain line, like to go wide, and he was just at Billy Burns the entire time. Now, I I would prefer both Levy and Connors to Van der Fleer, but I sort of recognise that like. Van der Fleer just gives you that again and again and yeah. again and again. Like you won't the work quit. capacity is n- just won't quit. Mental. And and like it, it's a great selection by Cullen to sort of go. Do you know what? Like we're going to put Burns under a lot of pressure because Ulster kind of have to chase this match. Like I don't think he's going to pick Madzer, so we're gonna we're gonna push like their axis under a lot of pressure. Um. And yeah, I mean, you have to credit Cullen's selection 
So you sort of say like, oh, Leinster, like I was saying, like Leinster thinking their feet, but they also thinking their feet with who's gone out there. Like Leo's decided to to make that decision about who he's who he's going to pick. Um, and you know it's tough for guys like this is they, they played four games. Uh, you know they played a semi final, a final. Reese Rodok and, and Max Deegan haven't been selected in the match day squad in Ireland. Reese is uh, like a super experienced, big leader in Leinster, mm. and he's not getting the spot even on the bench, which I was really surprised. I thought he, I thought he was a definite for the bench for the final. You know, bring on when they're bringing on Jack McGrath and Marty Moore. Madzer and Cooney like we'd bring on Reese and Johnny and Crow and Fardy and Rob and go yeah you, you think you've experience take a look at our experience but uh, you know to, ha- to have him squeezed out um, like that takes that's a tough that's a tough call to make as a manager nobody in Leinster underrates Reese Ruddock uh, neither in the fan base nor in the uh, nor in the coach nor in the executive like he's been a big reliable player for us he's been captain a lot and to sort of leave him out is a is a really tough call but you don't make the kind of necessary progress to grow the next generation of a team if you don't pick the guys like well, Deegan Doris and Connors on form if you don't if you don't give them a bigger carrot than the Zebra way, the Edinburgh way, the... You're absolutely right. Way. But I think from for, for my line of thinking in this final is like you want, you don't just want good players starting the game. You want good players finishing the game. Uh, I, I thought he was a shoe-in for the, for the number well, 20. I, you, you touched on it there. So who, who would you pick as hooker for the Heineken Cup final to start? The quarterfinal. Quarterfinal. Um, Sorry, Freudian slip there. Jesus <laughs> Christ! Leinster's. Who would you pick for Leinster's Leinster's final? For for this one, uh, I I would probably veer towards Crow. I pick James Tracy. Would you? Yeah, I I've watched Tracy now for the last two seasons play for Leinster, and like he plays a lot. He, he's involved in a lot of matches with. Guy's been away with, Ron, with Ronan Keller coming through Most with the fact player under Leo. with the fact that he's not uh, involved in Irish camp, mm. and I sort of gone, geez, like this guy's great as a as a domestique peloton playing like he tackles, he throws, he occasionally gets on the ball. You know he's not a massive threat. Like, you know hands, you know he's not crow, but. Yeah. He doesn't do stupid stuff. Like, he doesn't turn it over. He doesn't lose ground. He dropped the ball as soon as he came on the final. Yeah, after winning the line out. <laughs> our, first, our first in a month. And you sort of go... And it, go, it goes back to the, like, application of pressure. And the first match, I'm pretty sure it was Glasgow, but it might have been Edinburgh. It was definitely one of the Scottish teams. I saw Kelleher playing. Like, darts weren't good. Mm. Lost too many line outs. And we were chatting... At half time of the match at the weekend, I was just sort of going, I don't think Keller even has a consistent miss. I think you're going up there going, I don't know where the ball is going to go. And like, not like spectacularly badly, but I, I've played with Hooker before, the one in particular came to mind, saying like... He will rename nameless. You didn't know what was going to happen when you went up there. Like, you really, 
you didn't know if it was going to be high, if it was going to fucking like hit you in the stomach, if it was like which way it was going to be left, if it was going to be right, it, like random shit. And well, the bits and pieces. Rory Best got 100 some caps with darts that would go wrong at the wrong time, also. What? No, I see, I, I, you're right, but I'll, the difference is Best would have games where it would like just spectacularly implode. Yeah. Right. Like, and the most obvious one being for the Lions playing against AC, well, ACT. Yeah, but also against the Brumbies. The pre uh, World Cup warm up against England, where it was like, these are going fucking everywhere. So, like, spectacularly. And we lost two against Japan, which were massive, massive. Like, but everything in that game was kind of magnified, I think. And per- perhaps. We don't need to go over that, do we? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, like, I, I think he, he had matches when that would happen. And he'd have matches when he'd be, like, you know, 15 out of 16. Um, whereas with Kelleher, it's, it's like you just don't know. That, that's what it looks like to me. And that's not a good look as a hooker. So, I mean, that's something he needs to fix because everything else is there. But you can't keep doing that. No, but I remember, well, at the start of... Dylan Hartley's career when he was a Tyro and like he wasn't he wasn't the player that he ended up being mm. and they ended up like England and Northampton's line ended up becoming a lot simpler like a lot of throws to two and four and you're going yeah we won the line out or we're not going to attack off the tail and it's like make sure you win the fucking line out you know they also had Courtney Laws in Northampton and England which was a big Bonus from you know, long limbs, tall guy, very easy to get in the air. But uh, like Dev was called in the line outs, uh, in the final, and a lot of balls were going to Conan and Doris. And you're going just firstly, Dev, like the Conan ones are at two a lot, the Doris ones are typically towards the tail. And you're going, firstly, Dev, just call it on yourself, you know. Calling yourself a three, whatever, like you'd be like one of the best line out forwards in world rugby, or call it on. Like, we started throwing to James Ryan as well, and which is basically didn't call it on James Ryan in the first half. Uh, but it, uh, there was a number of like, I, I'm not going to blame all of those on Keller. Well, there were some that were definitely his fault, like, there was others where like we had loads of movement. And then the ball comes in, and like Andrew Porter snagged one at the tail. That's not the first time he's done that. Uh, and you're going, Jesus, like nobody knows what the calls are. One thing I heard <clears throat> on a sort of grapevine was that uh, we changed the calls because they had so many ex Lancer players. And, you know, Jack McGrath in particular, who only moved like last season, but Jordy the season before, and they're going, they know all our calls. So that makes sense. It makes sense now. I'm not sure if it's right or wrong. You know, uh, it's like secondhand information, but it is the sort of thing that does make sense because when you have guys, they did they they had like two bush league lineouts where like they just nobody knew where the ball was going at all. So that's that's potentially something that happened. Um, and again, I might be wrong there. You know, yeah. Focusing on uh, Leicester's final, the quarter final against Saracens. Um, you had made that sort of statement about you would pick James Tracy um, I mean at other crucial positions I think in say for example in the second row and the back row there would definitely be conversations about which of 
Dev or Fardy or Ryan you pick? No, for me it's very easy. It's like Dev and and uh, Dev and, and Ryan, Ryan yeah. yeah. Fardy on the bench. Yeah, like a hundred. Like that's a very easy question in my in my head. And then back row, how would you feel about? Them? I'd go with Connors. Uh, Connors, Darius, and Conan. Yeah, uh, and who's on the bench? Probably Josh, uh, because of his outstanding play, and also because you're going to give Connors a, a task to do, which is going to wear him out. You know, tackling Billy Vunapola low, looking for Billy, Billy Vunapola. Like, Billy Vunapola is so good at rugby. Like, it's not that he's just a 20 and a half stone man. Like, Nathan Hughes is that size. Mm. Billy Vunapola is a brilliant rugby player. And he's so hard to play against. And it's totally worthwhile game planning for one player in that regard. And Fardy can play at six. And like James Ryan looked James Ryan looked tired after yeah. 33, 35 minutes, but he won't he won't look as tired next week. Like that that match, like playing in a final, coming back from a long time out and going straight into a final. And you don't think anything of James Ryan. Like he's kind of you know, he used to ask that question, when is it okay to criticize a player? Like, you know, you can't really criticize a young player, but you can criticize a player when he's older. Whereas James Ryan, like no one's I criticise James Ryan for making feck all tackles against Wales. Against Wales, but he's never done it since. <laughs> because he now, <laughs> because, but you, you just you wouldn't <laughs> you wouldn't you wouldn't think of criticising because he's just so good. So he comes straight back in. You sort of go, oh, man, like he looks tired now. But you wouldn't think of anything of putting them back into a final for eighty minutes. And you wouldn't think of anything playing like if you had to play Dev and Ryan for eighty minutes each in a final. You go fine, like. Maybe not the way you play it, but like not the worst thing that could happen either. If you needed to pick, basically, if you for some like if you had an injury mm. and you needed to take off Cone or Doris early, you could put Fardy on at six comfortably, mm. and you could put Josh on at seven whenever you wanted to put him on at seven after Connors had tackled Billy. Mm-hmm. So I agree with that. Um, I I don't think there's like the the hooker one is really. Biggest question. Like Kelleher is such an explosive player, such a good tackler, so strong, and like he he's he's a good scrummager. He does a lot of things so well. But that coughing up line hits, like four line hits in the first half, four line hits, certainly three before twenty five minutes, twenty eight minutes, whatever it was. It's like Jesus, what the fuck is going wrong here? You know, we are, and like not the first time it happened, you know, and that also happened no. against Munster in the regular season game in Lansdowne Road. Uh, it puts big question marks in your mind. As, as much as we would say about McFarlane about not having a, a regular goal kicker, why can't you have a guy who wins most of our line hits? You put yourselves in good positions uh, through, through penalising Ulster infringements in the final, say, or through your own good play, you think what's a good position and you're turning over the ball. You can't exert any pressure. You can't camp down, you know, within 10 metres of their line and exert the psychological pressure on players. You're just going, not only can you not exert pressure, you give them a boost. It's a big ask. Sorry, it's a big worry. So I would I would uh, actually start with Crow and that Crow's line out has probably been second biggest weakness of his game you know the rumoured weakness is that he's not a good scrummager I always think that's 
difficult for anybody on the outside looking in to comment on. Um, you hear second and fourth hand really at this stage from players who scrummage with good scrummaging hookers. Like apparently Brian Byrne now at Bristol was a really super scrummaging hooker and he's not a big man. But from what I had heard from, you know, not like from people who were involved in Leinster was like props like the scrummaging. You know, he'd played hooker all his life. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he's a real nuggety player. Mm-hmm. But Brian Byrne wasn't a good thrower either. Um, but it's a good rugby player, like his bro. And his, his, brother is a, his brother is another interesting character, I think, in that, again, I think slightly underrated. He's a player, when he was in schools, he was, like Ed Byrne was amazing mm. as a prop. Had horrific injuries. And physically is by quite a distance the smallest of the Leinster props uh, there's a couple of games I've seen him in I saw him play for the A's maybe two seasons ago and you're going this fella is so like he's the best player on the pitch by a mile he's such a good rugby player so few mistakes such a good handler such good awareness of where the ball is likely going to be and technically, in terms of how well he tackles, how well he handles the ball, how diligently he looks for work, he's very good. But physically, now he's gotten an awful lot bigger since the uh, lockdown. It just looks to me like he's, you know, one of those guys who's pragmatic and goes, I'm mostly going to be on the pitch for 25 minutes to 20 minutes. I don't need to be as aerobically fit as I've been. I can just max out on on size, carry carry more weight, uh, because I'm going to be on the pitch for twenty five minutes, half an hour max. Mm. Again, part of the captain's Yeah, they, like he's really well liked and yeah. well respected. He just, I, I've never met the guy, uh, but everybody speaks very highly of him in in Leinster. And I think he's a he's he's been vying like at the start of the season. Peter Dooley got the upper hand for that uh, number seventeen jersey, mm-hmm. and started a lot more games as well. Uh, but since the return, Ed has has been the man in charge of that jersey. So we were talking a little bit earlier on about Ulster and how they were gambling hard in the final. Uh, do you have a few ideas of where they where the beginning of the middle might take them? As it were? Absolutely, I I think there's quite a bit of room for growth in Ulster, um, and a couple of areas strike me immediately. Firstly, um, I'm a huge Will Allison fan. I think he's one of the most rounded and gifted backs in Ireland. He's got huge injury problems, and I don't know if he's going to have a long career. But he's he makes that he makes any Ulster team a much more threatening and uh, an incisive team of fifteen. I think Robert Balakum adds a huge threat. He's got just great length, you know, in terms of how tall he is, how long his arms are, great pace. He's like a wide receiver, you know. He's your deep threat. He's a guy, along with Stockdale, that you can have these two six foot four guys on the wing and who have out and out pace 
their length gives them not just great catching ability, but it gives them the big fend. Uh, Balakum is a guy who really impressed. He's one of the guys who I felt fulfilled David Nusifor's promises of how good the sevens could be found most completely. He wasn't coming from, you know, an elite rugby background. He wasn't picked from the Leinster Academy or, and then going, oh, sevens made him. And you're going, well, you just got him from the Leinster Academy and he went back into the Leinster Academy. He was a guy who was essentially picked from, you know, Ennis Gillen, I think, or somewhere like that. And relative obscurity into becoming, you know, a guy who's scoring tries at European level. Um, Luke Marshall, I think, has is a very clever and wise player. As a 12 and a 13, um, I think Hume is a, is a super player as a 13, a classic 13. You know, he's... He's very like Tom Farrell from Castle Knock and, and Connacht and Lansdowne, you know, that he's got very good size. I think he's like 188, 98 kilos. He's got pace. He's got an outside break. He's got good feet to fend. Uh, but Marshall can maybe allow them to play and not rely so much on McCluskey, who I feel that they're overly reliant on as a 12. Like McCluskey has played a shitload of games for McFarland. So I think those are uh, there's room for growth there. Like they're back, like with Little and Lowry, they're tiny in the back three apart from Stockdale. Like Lowry is so small. There was a photo or a, a still image which I saw of him in the semi-final standing close to uh, Kosia. And he was standing much closer to the camera than Kosia and he looked like the fucking mascot. He is tiny. Now he's a talented player. But it's just something that in order to build depth, they need more, like, obviously, they need more than one option in, in any given position. So those those are backs. Also, have never had a problem with producing backs. Like, I think of, you know, the, the late Nevin Spence, born in 1990, played under-20s for a couple of seasons. Uh, then Marshall was born in 1991. Jackson and Olding, 92. McCluskey... 93, uh, Rory Scholes, you know, they've always been producing good players. Um, so backs haven't been a problem for them. Forwards are the problem. And one of the players who's super impressive and Ireland's really good and really unfortunately curtailed under 20 campaign was the captain, McCann, who was the number, number eight. eight. Them. Yeah, very good player. A rangy number eight with great ball skills. And I was I was looking at his stats and where where he stands physically, so he's listed like one ninety six, so six foot five, and I look at him and I go, a leader, a good ball player, a guy who's experienced a limited amount of success with the under twenties. They, to my mind, they would have won the Grand Slam this year, uh, and I look at Matty Ray, uh, Ulster's number six, who's a worker. You know, just a worker. But in terms of ceiling, McCann's ceiling is a lot higher. Way higher. And I'd like to see him being brought into the team quite quickly on the blind side. You can't get rid, like, he can't replace see He was a number eight as an under under 20. Maybe he'll project long-term as a number eight. But get him playing frequently. Azur Allison is a number, another player who's just, I think, a year older than McCann. Again... Ulster have had this huge problem with translating guys who played Irish under-20s forwards into professional rugby players. They've 
just failed time after time after time. And with these guys who were such, um, McCann especially, but Azur Allison had a lot of, like he, he didn't get to play as many games at under 20 as he would have wanted because of injury, but it's important that they translate these players into pros uh, because Ulster need Ulster forwards. And it's where so many collisions happen. It's where so much energy is generated for the team and between the team and the stands. And I know we're playing in a in the COVID area where the stands are empty, but they're not always going to be empty. And Ulster fans and the Ulster team need Ulster men in the pack to rally around. Like there's so many Leinster players in that Ulster pack at the moment. Really great pros. But great pros. And like someone like Jack McGrath he has a fucking shitload of medals. You know, played for the Lions in test matches against New Zealand. Like Marty Moore has two Six Nations medals. Like these are guys are decorated. Jordy Murphy's beat the All Blacks. Like these guys are decorated pros. But you can't, and I wouldn't want to get past the idea that Ulster have their own identity as as a rugby team. This is a team that's produced great forwards. Like some of the greatest forwards in Irish history. You know, Willie John, Sid Miller, Philip Matthews. Philip Matthews. Yeah. Uh, Bestie. Bestie. Uh, Jeremy Davidson Nigel Carr like super players Paddy, Steve Smith Philip Steve Matthews Maine, yeah, Blair yeah, like, Blair Maine, yeah like these are some of the legendary Ulster players and and they need to be able to translate these players quickly and you see I think McFarland is the right man to do that he hasn't let he hasn't let like the grass grow under his feet in terms of translating players into professionals young players into professionals so i think that's the next portion for growth like i think that there's some of the sort of journeyman type leinster players in that um in that in that ulster setup who you know they should be like why can ulster not produce players that are better than these guys and make this team more ulster uh which i think would be uh not I think it's doable. I, I don't see how it's been such a big ask in the recent, like in the last decade. Like they've failed to produce so many or translate players who are like, I wrote an article about this about two years ago, about players who were the most capped under 20, Irish under 20 forwards in their under 20s compartment. And none of them went on to play pro rugby for, for Ulster. So that's room for growth. They either... If it's, I don't know what the issue is, whether it's guys don't have a professional attitude, which is, if you're looking at it as a, that it's a player problem, or whether it's that the standard is set too high and that everyone has to be like Ian Henderson. But there's some Ulster players in there like Andrew and, and Ross Kane and, and McCall who it's not that the standard is set too high. It's that there's a problem translating talent into professionalism. So that's a big ask. And that's not just McFarland. That's down through uh, Kieran, uh, the scrub performance coming half who's out of the academy. Yeah, the guy from the guy from London, uh, Campbell. Yeah. Uh, who's done a good job? Like, don't get me wrong, but... 
they need they need more Ulster forwards. So that, there's room for growth there. Um, can they get? Like I think Sam Carter's been a little underwhelming as a as um as a second row. I would, you know, I think that um, in previous seasons. He relied, uh, Dan McFarland relied on all, and, and you know, in this 1920, he relied a lot on Treadwell, who I think has room for growth as well. Not an Ulster man, but I would like to see, I'd like to see that Ulster pack uh, do better. Now, the one player who I haven't mentioned, and I, I should have at the, the top, is Tom O'Toole, who is a super player. He is quality. Uh, he's played an awful lot of games already. McFarland, he played in 21 out of Ulster's 23 games this season. As like a 21-year-old, maybe 22. Uh, he's strong, fit, abrasive, scrummages well. Uh, he's a proper player and that tight head. When you look back through Ulster's tight heads, you know, apart from the brief uh, decky fits, like it's been, it's been NIQs for like a decade. BJ Bolton, then John Afoa. So Tom O'Toole is key and, and also need to keep on. He can't just keep on, you know, it's not like they can keep on finding Tom O'Toole's, but they need to work really hard at keeping these guys in the system and progressing them quickly into to pro rugby. Um, I'm, I'm sure everyone in Ulster already knows this, but it's it's a huge, it's a for from an outsider looking in, it's a big issue. I would say specifically about that team, and going back to your reference to Will Addison, I would get Stockdale back onto that wing. I, it's it's been one of the it's been one of the great constants in my time watching rugby is wingers who think they can play fullback. Going back to the great David Campisi and. I don't know if wingers think they can do anything now. Like, I think the coaches kind of think, oh, like, I'm going to see what this guy is like. But, like, Stockdale is... He's a super winger playing a fullback because... And I look at Larmer thinking, like, here's a brilliant winger who isn't going to waste as a fullback. Like, he's picking up medals, he's getting experience, he's doing this and that. Like, you know, is he doing anything wrong? He's just not as good. Stockdale's just not as good. Larmer's just not as good at fullback as they're in the wing. Whereas I look at Shane Daly and I go, that guy's a fullback. He looks like a fullback. If you play him on the wing, you lose something from his match. You play him a fullback, he looks brilliant. I agree with and Shane Daly. It's, it's just, it's, I, I, I can't put any, like, I can't quantify it any more than that. I just think that, like every time I see Stockdale get the ball, I go, he's not going to kick it. He's going to run this back and he's going to get most of us running out of his legs while there's no one else around him and like he might beat somebody. But like when, when he played in the wing and particularly when he played at provincial level, like Jesus, like he got, look, when he played an international level, he was Six Nations player at the tournament in his first season, right? He scored the winning try against the All Blacks. He went out after that season and he, like, he, had, he had like a shark's grin in his face. He would get the ball you know, like 20 metres away from the touchline. And there might have been one, there might have been two guys marking, it might have been one and a half guys. And he goes, this guy is going to score. Like he he has, he has a scores. And like, it's so rare. Most people don't have it. Yeah. Right? It's why strikers, it's why you go back to like, just forget about like round a game. Like just guys who can put the ball in the back and like guys who can score. Look at the late career 
even mid-career to late-career renaissance of Keith Earls, where he's now like with a sort of like total fan favor of the team because he's basically accepted that he's a winger and not a thirteen or a fifteen. And like, yeah, yeah, he he famously said, "I hate playing 11. Do you remember when, back when we wrote loads of articles on on like a weekly basis? Remember just reading that quote? He's like, "Jesus, you held yourself." hostage to fortune there like, like, but sure Luke Fitzgerald did the same Luke, yeah, Luke wouldn't yeah. be happy and the reason I mentioned 1994 was Dennis Hickey I'm a fullback <laughs> you know you're a winger mate yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's almost like it's to derive from this idea that wingers are thick or soft or something like that or one dimensional or one dimensional and they're just like fast and really really big or just like just get down the corner or, you know, they're stuck out in the wing because they don't know what else to do in the game, or they can't sit, they can't be in the middle. And it's like, it's a bit like Steven Gerrard as well. He's like, well, fucking easy it when I wasn't in the middle of the pitch. And he's like, you know, playing out in the right hand side of the midfield for Gerrard, and it was the graveyard shift. And it's like, or like when Benita stuck him out there and he scored like 25 goals, he was like, I hate it. He's like, yeah. I hate scoring goals. <laughs> yeah. But you're do, brilliant at it. Do best your job. <laughs> they don't build him like that anymore. He won't like that. He's one of a kind. He just burst through the defence. Someone needs to stop him. We were talking about uh, Ulster and the potential for growth they have and the, uh, their, them being at the, uh, the end of their beginning and maybe the beginning of their middle. Is it fair to say that Van Cran is looking at the end of his middle and the beginning of his end? Or is that too... No, I think you're right. I think you're right. Like the way I, I was thinking about it earlier, and that Ulster qualified for the final of the Pro 14 and also a quarter final of the Heineken Cup, clearly puts them in the provincial pecking order above Munster, who are semi finalists in the league and, and, and knocked out at group stage. Now, I don't think there's that much gap between Ulster and Munster in terms of if they played each other 10 times you know would it be 6-4 7-3 whatever but uh, that's a slip from from Munster they've slipped backwards and I Van Gran's tactics in that semi-final just held him open to a lot of dissatisfaction now it wasn't I don't think it was actually I was about to say I don't think it was all Van Gran I mostly do think it was Van Gran in terms of how they play that game and the lack of adventure that they showed even when the game was slipping away from them so I think that I think that it is the like his his he's supposed to have twenty twenty, sorry twenty 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 one that season as his second last season, and then the following season to be his last season. Uh, so how 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 do you see Van Gran's position currently? In terms of, like from my from my perspective, when I look at when I look at the coaches, at uh, the various provinces. I think he's under the most pressure by like quite a long way. His demeanor has really changed. Like when he came in, he was doing everything by the book, and he was super positive. Super positive, and you know he really came across very well. And 
th- th- then the realities of being the head coach really get to you. And like what, what struck me about it is just like how difficult it is to do it. So I, I was watching, I got halfway through this documentary that was on BBC about like, you know, why Liverpool or Liverpool not winning the league for 30 years. It wasn't why. And they had different, you know, so they had like Rafa was on, and I love Rafa. I think he's dead. Like. And they sort of had a bit of interview with Julier and they had Daglish. And like Daglish is like such a legend. Like, and like one little vignette about Daglish stood out for me was when he went back after Hodgson, they, they barely had Hodgson, they had a still photograph of him. When he went back after Hodgson, um, Liverpool played Man United and like Ferguson was still there and he was still doing all this stuff in the touchline and he couldn't intimidate Daglish. Whereas everyone else in the league at that stage was intimidated. Like, you know, so Wenger and Mourinho could kind of, depending on how results went, like kind of act as peers, but they weren't. But Daglish was like, I'm the king. Yeah. You're, you're, you used to play for Scotland, like when I wasn't playing, you know, and a few, you know, a few others were playing and like, I'm Kenny Daglish. And Ferguson's kind of like, Mr. Kenny Daglish. And so like, that's an incredible individual. So you're going through, but look, like, you know, Kenny was there just to unify the club. So then you get into Rogers and you get into all these sort of things and Rogers was talking, but see, like you see Rogers' demeanor in, in press conferences sort of change as, you know, as results went against and you see sort of the, the doubt creep in and then like it, it shoots to this and like this man, this big tall man turns around with this baseball cup, he's got this big grin on his face and you're going, it's Jürgen and you're going, he has managed to maintain it. Mm. It's fucking incredible. Like that, Roger, like Rogers had that when things were going well, yeah. like, like Van Graan had it when things were going well, well and, you, and, you, and you can kind and you can kind of go with Klopp, like but Klopp's had success, and you sort of go, yeah, but that's the hard thing to do. Yeah, like look he's, at Mourinho, he's, though, he's, how he went from being really charming and charismatic to unbelievably difficult and abrasive, and just a fu- like he is fucking horrible now. And the thing that so the thing about Klopp and I'm like I'm I'm tr- like I'll asking about Van Grand is like when when you go out right when you're in that situation you sort of go this is how I want to behave like this is I've given a lot yeah, of thought to I'm yeah. gonna coach I'm gonna manage this is the way I want to do it because this is what I want to project and it's really really hard so then there was an interview with Pep Linders and. So Pep Linders is like Liverpool's head coach, but he wasn't always Liverpool's head coach. He was like doing Liverpool's youth team. Then he went over to coach in, in Holland yeah. as a, like as a manager. He didn't go to coaching. He went to manage a team in Holland because his dad was sick, but he also wanted to manage a team. And he's, he's from Holland with the name like Pep Linders. And then he, he came back to Liverpool and he's Liverpool's head. And he's talking about like technically what they do in Liverpool. And he goes like, there's a culture of preparation. So he goes like, our day sort of starts after training. So he goes, this 24 hours. So like, you know, this is what we do. Like we analyze training. Then we sit down and we're like, we analyze the opposition. Then we figure out like how we're going to do training the next day. Like, you know, do we want to do the opposition set pieces, our set pieces, like how, how they build up from the back, how we build up from the attack. So we go through like what we're going to ask the guys, like who's the starting 11, what are they going to do? And then the shadow 11, what are they going to do depending on the opposition? And he goes like, Jurgen drives all of this. But like, when Jurgen turns around with a big shit-eating grin, like all you see is the shit-eating grin, but like mm-hmm. he's making everybody around him 
do all these things. Yeah. And he's still got the big shit-eating grin. So an appreciation of just how difficult that so is. Difficult. Like, it's incredible. There's a thing about Klopp uh, that he says, and it's... Rafa Honestein had been the, the biography of him. There's no input from Klopp at all or anyone, anyone in his direct family. There's not really much talk about it. But like, so he basically had his first kid when he was 19 or 20. And he has this quote that's sort of mentioned in passing where he said it. In, and he's, he basically goes, well, I knew I, who I was from the time I, I realised I was going to be a father for the first time. So he's like, he, he's so sure of his values that yeah. it's easy for him to be the same person all the way. And through. that's what I think is the difference... Well, one of the differences, I'm sure Van Graan is sure of his values, but he's constantly compared to Erasmus. I don't think. Oh, I, I absolutely do think this. I think when you, especially when I saw those great video clips of Erasmus preparing the spring box. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, this yeah. guy who is so sure of himself and he, he has done the things that like I look at Van Graan and I look at him and Ferrari is it Ferrari the assistant coach Ferreira Ferreira but I look at them compared to Larkham and uh, Roundtree and you're going like Larkham played for 14 years as a he's got a stand named after him he won the World Cup as an international as did Roundtree you know Roundtree went on two Lions tours didn't make the English 2003 no World Cup squad but like these guys like Roundtree probably played for 17, 18 years as a pro started off at an Aiden's back yeah these guys had so much they retired the A jersey pro experience these lads you bring in these guys who are super experienced pros like I've been at the highest heights of pro rugby Mm. and and then you have two guys who are career coaches who are when I say career coaches, young career coaches. And is Van Ron even 40 yet? No. Uh, maybe he's 40, but like he's he's not like in, in his 40s, so to speak. <laughs> uh, but like Van Gran's dad was like CEO of the Blue Bulls. Like Van Gran, I think he played rugby in college. He was in the same, like his school is, is Schneiman School. Aggers or something it's called and uh, so he was he was like he like he's more like an NFL type coach you know a second generation like I grew up around the NFL my dad was an NFL coach I was in a you know assistant quality control for linebackers coach in such and such a place and moved up the ranks whereas he, these guys he, he's brought in are his senior coach Larkham's role and his Ford's coach and they're going we know fucking everything about rugby. Yeah, I think that there has to be some tension between there because I think Van Gran has, like, I look at Van Gran's moves to, uh, with the Ulster squad in terms of personnel. And I think Munster. He, Munster, sorry, he's he's been sure-footed there. You know, he he was able to bring in two like World Cup winners. I think. One was signed certainly before the World Cup was played. Dialende, I think, was signed for Munster before the World Cup. Um, and, you know, able to convince Carberry to come down. He's been able to trim us, our Munster squad to about 43 when previously been as high as 48. So I think he's he sort of assembled the squad that he wants. 
Um, and he's got a, a bunch of guys in an age group, the guys born sort of 80, 87 through to 89, which includes Earls, O'Donnell, uh, Kilcoyne, John Ryan, Stephen Archer, Peter O'Mahony, and right. uh, Conor Murray. And he's there going, these are going to be my my monster mainstay. I'm going to assemble all these other good players around Carberry, Snyman, Chris Farrell, Dialende. Um, and he needs to get a pot before he leaves because he won't be renewed after two the, years. The, 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 when you're going through, and the thing that would, the most obvious thing that makes me despair for Van Gran is the 6 2 split. Right, and you, you mentioned Erasmus's name. So Erasmus is the media predecessor, um, the guy who took over as the head coach of the national setup that he left. And the reason the six-two split works is Francois Stein. Absolutely. And you, you were the one that brought it to my attention. And you go, you can play two backs if one of your backs can play six positions. Yeah, and it's a fucking tank. I can kick yeah. goals from 60 metres yeah. and like won't get injured because he's bigger than half the forwards of the opposition. Yeah. And that's not an exaggeration. Like France State should have 100 caps, maybe 120. Instead, he's got a shitload of money because he... <laughs> yeah. That's, 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 the decision. No, no. that's the decision he made. Like he won yeah. a, Didn't he win two World Cups? Yeah. yeah, he's won two yeah, World yeah. Cups. You had 12 years between them. <laughs> like it's an incredible career. Yeah. You know, played in Paris for most of it. Yeah. Um, so... But he's the reason, like a like six two split doesn't work if like your starting front row isn't that good and like you've very, very limited options in the backs about what you're gonna do. And like you don't have a procession of gargantuan second rows that you're gonna bring on. It just like it was perfect for the Springboks, yeah, given the personnel. But it's not perfect for Munster. And yet, for some reason, he's doing it. And the, the reason he's doing it, and the reason I think that, and I didn't think this starting off, but I think it now, and I think instinctively, is when he went in, and I go back to the way he was sort of his personality, technically, he's brilliant, right? He's obviously a really good, like, he really understands rugby, really into it, technically, really gets it. But he just. He needs to make a. He needs to get a big call right. Like I mean, basically, to my mind, needs to get Crowley in. He needs to make a decision with Casey and Murray, right? Because he, he sees them closer. Like he needs to believe in Casey. Am I saying he needs to jettison Murray? He he either needs to get the most out of Murray by putting him under real pressure with Casey, yeah, or he needs to make a decision with Casey that Casey is gonna give him the sort of game, like basically a quicker higher tempo, better passing game than Conor Murray can produce and you're going to need to jettison the decision making and the box kicking that Murray brings and the experience and you're going to need to put Murray on the bench and go... See, I, I don't and, think... And at the same time, he needs to bring in another inexperienced halfback. Like, I mean, look, I think... I've never really fully bought Carberry as 10 and with Crowley there coming up as 10, I sort of go, I don't even know if Carberry's the best 10 in the Munster squad anymore. Like, potentially... I think, like, I watched Ross Byrne and then Crowley playing, and I go, we have got a quarterback controversy. Harry Byrne. Harry Byrne. Sorry. Harry Byrne, QB1, and then Crowley play in consecutive years for the 20s, thinking we have got ourselves a QB controversy for a decade here yeah. in Irish rugby. We have got two guys who can... Sounds like Ward Campbell. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. It is. Crowley is so talented. So is Harry Byrne. So is Harry Byrne. 
you know, Baird is so talented, so is Tom Ahern. Um, and they're competing for one spot, like they will be competing for one spot. But you see, my line on, 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 or my line of thinking on this is there's monster have this big, it's not a gaping hole because they had players in like 92 and 93 scandal, the two scandal brothers and, um, now who else is there? JJ was 92 but there's like in the first half of the 90s they don't have a lot to show for for you know homegrown players so you have a gap between the guys like they have four Lions born between 87 and 90 including CJ Sander and then no Lions since so you go where are Munster going to be able where are they going to get a player who they can go this guy is a starting international for Ireland all the time. He's Lions quality. Where's the second one of those? Where's the third one of those? And where's the fourth one of those? And it might be that you're looking at guys who are born 1997 through to 2000. If you put those guys in, there's but a learning Hodnett, curve. Hodnett, there's so many. Good, there's so many good that players. Class, but he, he's... He's got to make the decision. He's got to start putting them in. But if he puts them in now and they start, every player starts at scratch, basically. Who's the know? number eight who's the year ahead of Hodnett? Jack O'Sullivan. Very good player. Yeah, so like the f- Nash, very good. These guys are all 97 yeah, yeah. onwards. You know, they have one player from like born 1995, Liam O'Connor, the, probably the fourth choice loose head. Shane Daly is their only player, Munster born player, born 1996. Uh, Dan Goggin and Jack O'Donoghue were born in 1994 so they have this very skinny core of players born in the first half of the 90s mm-hmm. to replace a very experienced core of players born in the second half of the 80s um, and I don't think Van Gran is like Van Gran is going to be here probably unless he uh, gets relieved of his duties two years and he'll want by that stage, those players born in the late 80s will be at the end of their career. O'Mahony, Marie, Kilcoyne, etc. Mm-hmm. And so they're going, he needs to win a pot with them. So is he going to keep on playing them as much as he's been playing them? Or is he going to start going, no, I'm going to do, going to make sure that these players born 1997 onwards, like 23 downwards, start playing a lot more games. So you go back to your sort of like, is this the is this the beginning of the end for Van Grant? I think it is. I think I think he's been through his middle. I think he's missed he like his it went he was terribly unlucky that Snyman got injured in his first big match, right? Because like Can Snyman, I just cut across you in that one? Go like on. he was terribly lucky that he got the chance to finish a season which should have been finished ages ago with two new players who should have been only there for the start of the new season. That's a good point, yeah. You know, so he got the second chance. He got a second boy to the cherry to bring in Dialende and Snyman. And, you know, it, everyone thought, and Carberry, for this 1920 season, which should have finished in May. Mm. So this was a... a good finish in June, actually. Yeah, this was a boy to the cherry, which didn't, you know, the cherry remained fucking unbitten. Mm. Um... So now you you kind of go like he's like 
geez, if it doesn't work out for him, is he going to like if, say if like if he if he replicates this season, is he going to see at the final year of his contract a monster, or are they going to come to some sort of agreement that he will get a gig somewhere else, or like does he go early period? Um, McFarland on it and go this is the way I want the guys to play like and and from I will go back to it like to, to my mind the halfbacks are his big decision because he's got really good young halfbacks but he needs to make a decision in them where he believes in them and that they're able to back it up that it's the right decision so it's not just a case of like I'm going to chuck these guys in or, you know hey like he's got to drop Connor Murray and Casey's got to work out from. He's got to sort of make a decision with Carberry that like he is going to be a fullback if he plays at all. And, and Crowley's got loads of fullbacks. And Crowley's going to be starting to have like Nash is his best. <laughs> he's sort of going like oh, he's Carberry's. got Shane Daly. He's got Haley. Sorry, he's sorry, got sorry, Gallagher. Not Nash. Yeah, yeah. Daly, Daly. Yeah. Well, just to go back to our uh, Liverpool managers comparison, I always make the comparison between Munster and Liverpool. Uh, he's looking at a career or at, at Munster where. So, maybe even better just to come his way. Julie had the season 2001 where he won the three trophies. Five trophies? No. The, I'll, give, I'll give him four. Charlie Shields not a trophy. <laughs> it's pre-season. Uh, uh, Benitez obviously has the European Cup straight away and then the FA Cup and then he has a, he has a tilt in the league and it never happens from and ultimately it's unsuccessful. Rogers, shorter time, has a tilted lead, but like, you know, it was a real, like, a shot at Grand Prix. is yeah. on, on, the, on the verge of having, like, the seasons of, like, 2003, 2004, and, like, 2006, 2007, 2008 with Liverpool, where it's like, he has all the kind of, like, ones where they come along in fourth, but are unsatisfied with how things are going. It's like, he hasn't, he hasn't had the shot at glory, and he's in danger of having at the tenure at Munster without this big shot of glory and like oh, like the semi-final defeat record is really looking quite ominous you'd say like Munster or Ulster won more semi-finals than them McFarland is like instantaneously yeah and like McFarland as a kind of a gambler has all he's had a, he's had a bigger shot at Leinster than Munster have in the quarterfinal of the Hanging Cup last yeah. year. Like that was a bigger shot than, than, than the Van Brand had thrown at, at Leinster. The balance between an emotional Svengali and a technocratic <coughs> manager there's, 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 there's definitely people you can put forward from either camp but I th- oddly the, the emotional guys do better I think at, at the higher level I think that you end up part of the scale is just getting like the best players and then managing the egos rather than building up a winning machine and you, you can I'm sure you can you can definitely point to like technocratic guys who have like built great teams and like that's the premise of Moneyball and, and all that sort of idea. But 
what's the name of the guy who took over from Bayern? Who took over at Bayern? I can't remember his Hansi name. Flick at the moment. Yeah, Hansi yeah, yeah. Flick. But like your your Pankins was your Pankins was like that, and then the guy who did Spain and Madrid back in the sort of the noughties, um He was he was manager of he was manager of Madrid like in two thousand and five, and like he was even temporary. Yeah. And those guys who kind of make everything just kind of hum along in the background and whatever they do works, like, at the highest level. And then you got Zinedine Zidane, who's one of the best players ever. And, like, he managed it. And, like, I'm sure Zinedine Zidane, like, knows loads about football, but he's an emotional sort of, like, he just, like, he can just drop Gareth Bale and just go, yeah, you're not, you're not playing for me. Yeah. You're just, nah. Or, like, Hamas, you just go, nah. I, I don't care how much it costs. Like, I'm... I'm the easier. Like, yeah. And it's not even a thing. It's, like it's not even a thing. It's just, no, no, no. And so that emotional thing, whatever, whatever way you do it, is kind of gets the bigger, gets the bigger pops. The technical thing will get you to the higher, like it'll raise your tide, but it won't get you the big pops. Mm. All as... Mm. there's obviously loads of contradictory examples of kind of like Steve Kerr and the Golden State Warriors and all that sort of like, you know, a journeyman pro becomes like a, you know, like a, like a brilliant manager. Yeah. Like he, you know, he'd be, he be one that Emotional comes to mind. Emotional genius becomes brilliant manager in great but, fit. <laughs> <laughs> but again, well, maybe, maybe it is the emotional thing. Like maybe that's the, maybe that's yeah, the Yeah, Steve Kerr knows exactly who he is. He's like, he is like uh yeah, Jurgen Klopp. He knows exactly who he yeah, is. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he saw his contributions to the Jordan thing. Oh course, my so. God, he's a great guy. Yeah. So, so anyway. maybe maybe I've contradicted myself. We've certainly gone over our four minutes allocated on Monster, as yeah. we always do. <laughs> they're, just, they're too interesting. Yeah. The soap opera that is 